Hello, I'm Neil Malika Henderson, live in New York and for Kate Baldwin. This is State of America Tonight. You've been watching the White House press briefing. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, it began with a statement from the, the president where he talked about the tax reform and what he sees as the positive effect on the economy. They also pushed back, and that was really what dominated this press, press conference, pushing back against a book that's out really detailing the first year of this White House, a chaotic scene, uh, really, and the White House essentially said that the book is full of lies uh, and that Bannon uh, is simply trying to peddle a fantasy ban, of course, that ex uh, top aide to this president. We're going to bring in Abby Phillip, who was at that press briefing. Uh, she's out outside the White House now. Abby, this is day two of the White House pushing back against this book that has really uh, set a lot of uh, conversation and tongues wagging here uh, in, 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 in D.C. there. Uh, what did you make of this defense that the White House is offering today from the podium by Sanders? Well, Nia, it's really remarkable to see the White House uh, go in this direction in order to distance the president and this White House from his former chief strategist, Steve Bannon. Uh, One of the interesting things Sarah Sanders had to say today was that the the president was never particularly close to Bannon, who was at some at some time during the campaign, his campaign manager, who was a chief strategist, who was given co-equal status with the chief of staff at the beginning of this administration, and who the president himself described as longtime one of his longtime friends uh, upon Bannon's departure from the White House earlier this year. So it's a a complete 180 turn for the president and frankly, a little bit hard to believe in part because it contradicts nearly everything that we have learned um, about the relationship between the president and Bannon and and, and a lot of what the president himself has said about Bannon. Uh, There were some questions also today about the idea of a non-disclosure agreement and whether um, other White House aides or, or any White House aides, frankly, were asked to sign them. Uh, The reason this comes up is because the president's personal attorney um, accused Steve Bannon of of um, of breaking his non-disclosure agreement, one that was signed during the campaign, raising questions about whether other senior aides had been asked to sign such a document. It's also not even clear whether White House aides or federal employees would even be allowed to sign such documents. So uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders would not say whether any had been, uh, but I've been told by a former Trump campaign officials that it was common for senior campaign officials uh, like Bannon, who at the time was, uh, the, uh, was the campaign manager, to sign an NDA. Um, and it's also part of a broader legal strategy by this White House to push back and push back as aggressively as possible on this book and on the assertions made in it, which they believe uh, are kind of a way to undermine this president and undermine his administration. Abby Phillip, we'll see what the next days bring on this book. Thank you so much. There's a lot to talk about tonight, so let's get right to the panel. We've got John Phillips, CNN political commentator and talk radio host for KABC, Sabrina Siddiqui, politics reporter for The Guardian, Brad Woodhouse, who was former communication director for the Democratic National Committee and the former president of Americans United for Change, and La Ni Chen, a former public policy director for Mitt Romney. Uh, Sabrina, I'm going to get right to you on this. This is day two, right, of this pushback from the White House uh, on about this book, Fire and Fury, from Michael Wolff. It seems like they may have been caught a little flat-footed yesterday, a more robust uh, pushback today, really questioning uh, Michael Wolff, questioning Bannon, and getting specific in terms of some of the things that the book lays out. 
Mm -hmm. I think that clearly there was a much more widespread effort by the White House today to discredit uh, the contents of this book, uh, to threaten legal action, for example, against Steve Bannon. Although we know with Trump, he often does threaten legal action and doesn't follow through, uh, but really taking a much more aggressive posture. It's notable, though, that Sarah Sanders couldn't really necessarily lay out uh, many examples of what was of the falsehoods that she claimed the book was riddled with. I think one of the obstacles this White House faces is that a lot of the explosive claims in the book, the infighting among staffers, the effort by aides to undermine each other, questions around the president's stability and fitness for office, uh, those are the same reports that have clouded the first year of his presidency. Uh, and there are m many high-level aides who have departed this White House within its first year alone. So I think that they are dealing with um, a book that puts together a lot of the reporting that we saw in terms of the palace intrigue surrounding this administration throughout the course of the last year. And John, the idea also, the question came up of this was a White House that essentially seemed to welcome Michael, uh, Michael Wolf in. At least that's what he said. Uh, he had pretty good access to a lot of the principles there. Uh, so how can they now sort of claim that? Or, or I guess even why did they even do that? Why did they welcome him in in, in such a way over these last months uh, to talk to so many principals in this White House? Well, Sarah Huckabee Sanders disputed that assertion uh, earlier in the press conference. Certainly Steve Bannon uh, gave him unbelievable access. And I think a lot of the lashing out that you're seeing from the White House today is directed at Bannon because they see this guy as a Judas. They see him as a petulant guy who didn't get his way. Let's not forget, when he was brought into the White House, he was brought in on equal footing relative to Reince Priebus, former chair of the RNC, and Jared Kushner. What happened? Steve Bannon lost. Jared Kushner's still there. He's clearly very upset about it. And I forget who it was that described this guy as a hammer and everyone else around him as a nail. And he's lashing out here. He's going after Jared Kushner. He's going after the White House. And it's unfortunate to see that. But right now, Steve Bannon is a man without a country. If he thinks that Trump supporters are going to side with him over the president, he is sadly mistaken. And I think based on what we've heard, based on his conversations with the president, today, it sounds like he's starting to hear that message. And Lonnie, one of the things that comes from uh, the book, kind of the subtext of this book, and I don't know if you read the excerpt today that was in The Hollywood Reporter, the last line of that, uh, that excerpt from Michael Wolff says that when Donald Trump was at Mar-a-Lago, uh, he had trouble recognizing and remembering some of his old friends uh, and that 100 percent of the folks in the White House that Michael Wolf talked to for this book feel like this is a president that isn't fit for office. What did you make of those claims? And again, CNN uh, hasn't verified the reporting here, but these are Michael Wolf's uh, assertions based on his reporting. Well, I, you know, clearly they're explosive claims, uh, if that's the case, because this is the very heart, the very belly of the beast, if you will. I mean, one of the challenges here is you see the impact of disorganization at the White House before the current chief of staff, John Kelly, got there. It was essentially a free-for-all environment. And one of the side uh, effects, one of the byproducts of that free-for-all environment is you have all of this rampant leaking. You have people talking about each other on the record in some cases. Uh, so none of us should be surprised that the byproduct of that is going to be a book like this where a lot of that stuff gets revealed. And, and whether it's criticisms of other people in the White House or questioning the president's fitness, fitness for office, I think all of those things are a byproduct of that disorganization and chaos we saw from the first at least six months of the Trump administration.
And Brian, it looks like Democrats have some, have some concerns about the president's fitness for office. There have been reports that they've been meeting with a Yale psychiatrist about the president's mental health uh, and that there might be more meetings uh, this month over that. What do you make of that? Is this something, this idea that the president isn't mentally stable or fit for office, is that something that has legs uh, going forward among Democrats and possibly Republicans? Well, look, I think the thing that really has legs is this ongoing uh, Mueller investigation. But look, Nia, you don't need to look any farther uh, than the president's Twitter account to know uh, that he uh, that he is unstable, uh, that he uh, you know, that he does not, I think, have the fitness for office. I mean, anyone uh, that would try to bait the North Korean, uh, the North Korean regime into a nuclear war is beyond uh, having fitness uh, fitness for office. So I definitely think there there is something there. In fact, in that regard, there's I think very there's some detail. There's the Marlago not recognizing old friends. I, I don't think there's very much new here in terms of people questioning whether or not uh, Donald Trump is fit, uh, fit for office. I think, you know, most Democrats, many Americans uh, would would just look at his Twitter account and say he's absolutely not fit to be in office. And Sabrina, what do you what's next do you think from this White House? There were questions about these lawsuits, whether or not they'll actually come to pass. Where do you think the White House is going next in terms of their strategy in in dealing with this book, which hasn't even come out yet, has shot to the uh, top of the bestsellers mm-hmm. list already? And you imagine there's going to be more to come. Well, th- this well, is a this th- is a common for, for Sabrina. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, thank, thank you so much. Well, I think that the, it's, it's quite clear that they are going to try and take a more aggressive tack in uh, disputing the contents of the book. But they're also very eager to change the subject. And so you saw them really begin this briefing uh, with an effort to do precisely that, uh, having that uh, taped statement from the president touting his tax plan. He was in private meetings today with Republican senators on priorities for 2018, on a fix for immigration. So I think they're going to try and shift the conversation back to legislative priorities as well as strategy moving into midterm elections. The question will be uh, what do they do when they are barraged with constant revelations from this book Uh, and I think that you're just going to probably see more of Sarah Sanders using very grandiose terms to decry the book. Everything from pathetic to disgraceful to laughable um, and really just pushing hard against uh, what what it claims. And you saw John Donald Trump himself today was asked about uh, Stephen Bannon in in this book, and he sort of couldn't help himself but to respond to these questions. And he said, well, listen, Bannon called me a, a great man, so he seems to have changed his tune. Yeah, well, certainly you're going to see a lot of White House pushback on Bannon. We saw that after the Alabama Senate race. I expect to see more of that in the coming days. But on the point of the president's fitness for office, there are a lot of contradictory claims that I've seen floated out. I haven't read the book, obviously, read certain excerpts. One of them is that he was unaware. He had a conversation with Roger Ailes, and Roger Ailes suggested that John Boehner should be the chief of staff because he really needed a hard charger who knew Washington to do it, and that Trump didn't know who 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 John Boehner was. Well, also in the book, they claim that he does nothing but sit around and watch cable news day and night and read the papers and and is obsessed with with following the White House and how it's covered. Well, if you're doing that, you have to know who John Boehner is. Another one of the claims was that he didn't expect to win the election and was totally shocked after he won. Yet it was also said that after the Access Hollywood tape came out and certain Republicans were calling on him to step down as the nominee, he said, why would I step down as the nominee? I'm going to win the election. So over time, we're going to find out which claims are fabricated, which claims aren't true and which ones are. 
And Wolf will be out, I think, obviously answering some of these uh, claims and questions about his book in the coming days. Uh, Coming up, we will have much more to discuss on this, including Trump's reaction to Bannon. Stay with us. Donald Trump's a fighter, great counterpuncher, great counterpuncher. He's a fighter. I'm going to be his wingman outside for the entire time. To protect, so you'll not to be attacking those. Donald Trump in I, your I, role I, in no. our, our purpose is to support Donald Trump. That was three months ago, but these days it seems like Steve Bannon is much more of a frenemy than a wingman to President Trump. Here's how the president, who issued a very blistering statement on Bannon yesterday, this is how he described him today. Did Steve Bannon betray you, Mr. President? Thank you very Any much. words about Steve Bannon? I don't know. He called me a great man last night. So, you know, he obviously changed his tune pretty quick. All right. Thank you all very much. Thank you. I don't talk to him. I don't talk to him. I don't talk to him. That's just a misnomer. Thank you. But Bannon being Bannon is not likely to go away quietly. The question now is how will Bannon use whatever clout he may still have with his conservative base going forward? Back now to our panel. John, I'm going to go to you on this. You talked a a little bit about this uh, in, in the last blog. Does Bannon have any clout with the conservative base? And if so, how does he use it? He talked about uh, maybe playing a major role in 2018, this ultimate dream of, of, of toppling Mitch McConnell as the Senate majority leader. How is that looking now from where he sits? I think it's over. The only reason he got into Trump's orbit was because the Mercer family put him there. There was a, a period during the campaign where Trump was down by 12 points. It was after the Access Hollywood, ta- or after uh, the conventions. Manafort was the campaign manager, and the campaign wanted him to write a check for $50 million. He said no. The Mercer stepped in and said, we'll do it, but you need to get rid of Manafort, and you need to bring in Kellyanne, and you need to bring in Bannon. That's how he got into Trump's orbit. They had the falling out now. Who are the Mercers, who were also the financial backers of Breitbart, going to side with now? A guy who's out of the White House and lost his credibility with the base? Or the president of the United States, who's in control of the executive branch of government? He just lost his sugar daddy, he just lost his audience, and he just lost the president. Game over for Steve Bannon. Sabrina, what do you think? I mean, do you imagine there is a sliver of the Trump base which might be uh, open to this argument that Bannon will likely make, which is that Trump is now captive to the establishment, captive uh, to the Mitch McConnell, and he's the one that still uh, is the torchbearer for nationalism and, and sort of the Trump ideology? Well, I do think that through his platform at Breitbart News, uh, you can't necessarily argue that Steve Bannon would have lost all influence. You look at the fact that Republican primary voters ultimately chose Roy Moore as their nominee, not Luther Strange, uh, who was the establishment-backed candidate and the one who had been backed by Trump himself. Uh, I, I do think, however, you, what you saw from Steve Bannon after uh, the contents of this book were published was an effort to apologize by praising Trump. That's what we've seen from many 
people within Trump's administration who've gotten on his wrong side. They lavish him with praise. They know how to push the right buttons. Um, and, then, then, and then you saw Trump in turn say that, well, Steve Bannon said I was a great guy. So there certainly is potentially room still here for the two to work together. But I, I think that's why it was striking that the White House today tried to downplay the president's relationship with Steve Bannon, uh, saying that they weren't ever particularly close when Steve Bannon is someone who was his co-strategist for you know the, first, the majority of the first year of his administration, served in a high-level role in the campaign, and I think ultimately, as you said, does hold together this uh, platform for the nationalism that tr- for which Trump has become the standard bearer. And Bradford, Democrats, Bannon in some ways has been a gift that keeps on giving. He was very active, obviously, in that Alabama race. You see what happened there. Well, yeah, I mean, look, part of this is we're watching this whole thing kind of popping popcorn. It's like a movie. Uh, and we're all we're all kind of excited to watch this back and forth within the within the Republican Party. But look, I think Mitch McConnell is strengthened today. To John's point, I think uh, I think Bannon uh, Bannon has hurt himself. I'm not sure he can go recruit a bunch of credible candidates in his mold to run against fairly safe uh, Republican Senate incumbents that then would come in and uh, ostensibly uh, get rid of uh, get rid of Mitch McConnell. So in that regard, I mean, I'd rather have a Steve Bannon out there that had the the power, the credibility to to create mischief within within the Republican Party. I believe he he is damaged. I don't believe it's beyond repair. To uh, to, to, to Sabrina's point, um, I, you know, you with Trump, he can sue you one day and then he'll be on the phone with you yucking it up, uh, yucking up the next. So there's a possibility for a reprochment here, I think. Lonnie, quickly on Mitt Romney, he came up in the press conference today. Uh, Is he going to run in 2018 and possibly primary the president in 2020? Well, look, I I hope Mitt Romney runs for the Senate seat in Utah. I don't think it's uh, uh, clear that there's anything beyond that. But but certainly, I think for Romney, there is a great opportunity here to step into uh, the U.S. Senate and to make an impact on some issues he cares about, whether it's Russia, foreign policy, economic policy. uh, There are opportunities here. So I hope he runs. We'll see what happens. But certainly, uh, it'll be interesting if he does. John, Sabrina, Brad, and Lonnie, thanks for rolling with with us today. This is day 350 of President Trump's administration, and that's the State of America tonight. Check out our podcast. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or whatever uh, application you like to use. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.